the adults around you give you the false idea that adults know everything. Yeah. You are neglecting all of your humanity that cannot be monitored. I've studied human behavior in order to become other people. He's also responsible for where he's gonna end up yeah. in five or 10 years. Yeah, Welcome to How to Be an Adult, a new podcast created by the practitioners at the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada. We offer practical guidance for people like you who've inadvertently become adults and don't know what to do about it. I'm Luke Chow. And I'm Pascal Langdale. Now, whether you're 18 or 80, this is the trail guide to life that nobody gave you when you gained equality with your parents. Uh, we share our thoughts publicly here in order to democratize a fundamental aspect of being an adult, which is self-assurance. Now, in this inaugural episode, we cut right to the chase. We'll be defining adulthood as well as some of its uh, more salient characteristics. And in following episodes, we'll provide the principles for how to uphold this standard of adulthood. I want to thank my clients, and you know who you are, for helping me develop some of these ideas, because these come not just from my own experience or, say, Pascal's experience. It comes from my work with, at this point, thousands of individuals, many of whom are professionals and managers, who are outwardly successful and yet feel inwardly lost. My clients have made this podcast possible in two ways. One, because they've engaged with me for private sessions, they've allowed me to have the financial security to start sharing my best ideas in public for those who are not so privileged. Secondly, it is with their thoughts and input over almost 17 years at this point that I've come to realize there are universal principles for how one might do adulthood to the best of one's ability. All right, well, let's, um, let's start off then by uh, just agreeing on the definition of terms here, right? Um, let's start off with a big question. What is it to be an adult? What is an adult? Well, I, I took biology classes in university, <laughs> so the, 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 the very simple definition is an organism, an animal that's reached sexual maturity. Now, that's not going to be satisfying for our listeners because obviously us human beings, we're social species. There are social dimensions. There are psychological dimensions to adulthood. It's not just that you have your bar mitzvah and mm -hmm. you're an adult. It's actually, you know, a, I would say lifelong process of maturity. Now, that's still very vague. Yeah. Or is it a lifelong process of maturing? Maturing, which is a fine distinction because you've taken my noun and turn it, turned it into a verb, and it is a verb. It's something you do. It's something you do as long as you're living. You could also argue that even across a lifetime, your, your identity as a mature adult somewhat shifts. But so, so then the question comes, well, what is the overarching definition under which all those changes might occur? Let's kind of go beyond just the biological definition. It's not just like when you grow hair on your face. If we kind of look at legal definitions or if we look at the various milestones that we reach, we, we do have the bat mitzvah and the bar mitzvah at 12 or 13. We also have getting your driver's license, at least a learner's license at 16, where then you're adult enough to operate a two-ton machine on public roads. 
we also have 18, which is sort of the standard definition of when you're legally an adult and you can sign contracts and own property and you have yeah. the right to vote, which means your opinions matter alongside with the other adults. We also have 19, which in Ontario is when you can legally buy tobacco and alcohol. We have 21, where our American listeners can legally buy alcohol. We have 25, which is considered to be when our brains mature, and that's when we can also um, rent cars without um, a co-signer. <laughs> Do you think that Avis like sort of actually factored that in? <laughs> well, I, I'm sure they have statisticians to figure out, like, you know, at what age do we consider people mature enough to well, return the car? And yeah, yeah, okay, so mature enough, right? So there's a, there's a, a, a judgment uh, call being made about, about that. So if, if I just sort of give you an example, like a 13-year-old might say they're old enough to do something, they're mature enough to do something, but, but the objective adult in the room can turn around and say, no, you're not ready for that yet. And so... So what are the criteria that, that uh, we aspire to, to, to be able to say, well, this is adult behavior, this is adult benchmarks of capability? Perhaps is, it, is that it, benchmarks of capability? I guess that's the substance for all the rest of not just this episode, but <laughs> the, 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 the rest of the podcast. So that's a where, yes, basically. Yes, so going beyond just the ability mm. to fill out a a ballot at election time, going beyond the ability to sign your name at the bottom of a contract is, do, do you have the, the, the moral reasoning to choose a candidate that will be in service of society? Do, do you have the, the, the moral capacity to understand what the contract means right. and then to uphold it? So, but it's not, it's not necessarily just the, the, the contract we're talking about. So, uh, for instance, a, a two-year-old um, has almost no ability to um, accept a no, right? Is emotionally is incapable. Like, not, throw not just two-year-olds. Well, exactly. Well, that's my point is that, is that you, 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 know, uh, you sometimes see adults who are effectively throwing tantrums. And, and when you see that, it's quite, it's quite unnerving because uh, from an outsider's point of view, like that's, that's not behavior you would expect from an adult, but that's a judgment. So... So from that, are we saying that emotional forbearance or self-control, self-regulation or emotional wisdom is a hallmark of being an adult? Well, at, at this point, I'll, I'll probably narrow down the scope um, of this podcast to say that this is not just to be any adult. Right. We're going to be talking right. about how to be a happy adult. Mm -hmm. And it happens that playing nice with others is going to produce a happier adulthood right. than being unable to get along with others. So even if you're motivated by pure hedonism, they're not going to be moral judgments. No, it's, we it's, don't. At least I have no interest in prescribing mm -hmm. what people ought to do and then calling that adulthood. Mm -hmm. I have an interest in figuring out how one can have a happy, peaceful, fulfilling life, given all that one has by the time that we are legally or socially defined as an adult. All right. Okay. Um, so to anybody watching or listening, there's a, an existing question there, which is, well, how, was there a point in your life that you felt like you were an adult? And, and then the, the question is also, well, does that even matter? So I'll answer the first one first. And I would say yes. I, I would say that's probably when I started my hypnotherapy practice at the age right. of 23, um, going back a little bit further, maybe it's when I went to university at the age of 17. 
either of those two points gave me much autonomy as well as recognition from those around me that I had self-determination. But these are, these are socially negotiated sort of uh, identities, if you like, um, and also dependent on what you're doing. And so if you're unemployed, for example, or if you don't go to university and you don't get that separation from uh, your parents in the same way, well, I'll answer the second part of your yeah. first question first, because I, I don't actually believe that feeling like an adult is necessarily a valid way of knowing that you are an adult. Yeah. Because often our feelings tell us not to get on the airplane when the airplane actually is going to land 999,999 times out of a million are probably even better than that. And, and but, but also perhaps that there's a misapprehension of adulthood being something that it turns out not to be. I mean, if, if I was to turn around and sort of go, well, okay, what was my image of being an adult when I was uh, 14? The reality of it has, has certainly not been that. And it's changed over time as my different responsibilities. Sometimes... When you're a kid, the, the, the adults around you give you the false idea that adults know everything yeah. <laughs> and they're omnipotent and omniscient and, you know, that you shan't question them. And it's a very false pretense when adults act like that. So sometimes when we turn 18, we realize we don't know everything. We can't do everything. There's so much we don't yet know. And then we turn 30 and 40, and then we realize there's so much we don't know. And then we think we lack in adulthood when actually we just got bamboozled by yeah, the idea. pretentious contrived. Yeah, and the idea that there was an arrival at some point as well. Yes, and it's a large impetus for creating this podcast because I, I've helped so many people who are 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, and they have all the outward markers that we can associate with adulthood, yet internally they don't feel like an adult. Yeah. So that's where I challenge the idea that feeling like an adult is when we are an adult. A large part of what I, I, I do for people is I, I update their feelings to match the current reality. I would say that adulthood expands one's capacities. So our adult capabilities are in addition to the childlike nature that we're all born with. It's not actually supposed to be instead of. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of right. thinking that they have to abandon the, the open, curious, playful nature of childhood to be, you know, fitting into a three-piece suit. Um, and I, I contradict the idea. I mean, if there's one thing I do as a hypnotherapist is to help people sort good ideas from, from bad, bad ideas, ones. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the substance for, for this podcast will, will come from, where I, I do hope to give people best practices for how to think so that you are an adult in the eyes of the world. You feel like an adult internally, and you make use of whichever capacities are appropriate for the situation at hand. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's playfulness. Yeah. And other times it's seriousness. I want to point out how much of a 20th and 21st century question this is to ask what is an adult. Because before developmental psychology, K-12 
kids and adults kind of just got conflated into one, which means that kids were seen as kind of deficient and weak adults, as opposed to people in a distinct developmental phase. So you could think of in medieval times, or even Victorian times, kids would be sent to work on the farm as soon as they were physically able to, or they would go up the chimneys to sweep the chimneys. They'd, or they be, would... they'd be married pretty young as well for the, yep. the exchange of property and so on that came with it. Yep. And in the 20th century, as we kind of realized more about human beings through, through psychology, um, we started to realize that no, no, you can't just treat kids like they're incompetent adults. You have to treat kids as kids. And then there are multiple phases of childhood and, and then adolescence. And then you reach adulthood, which is generally considered to be a final stage, although then you reach your older age. There's also the informal rituals, like renting your first apartment, mm-hmm. um, so moving out of your parents' place and being on your own or getting your first job. And that's, and that's also speaking to almost like the next step. So you, you have a transition period, so you're, you're no longer an adolescent and you're stepping into adulthood. And part of that is... Well, you said renting an apartment. Well, there's the con. There's, you sign a contract, yes, but there's also a responsibility. You're going to have to pay rent. You're going to have to do what you said that you were going to do. So you're you're no longer excused to the same degree that you might be, you know. And for for some people, they see that heightened responsibility as onerous and burdensome. And yet, for me, and how I would want my listeners to to feel. It's empowering and liberating. Right. The, the difference, I think, is that if you feel that you're not up to the responsibility, then it feels onerous and burdensome. Right. If you feel like you've got what it takes to fulfill the responsibility, then it feels empowering and liberating. And in my experience, more people underestimate themselves as, I'll say, real adults then overestimate themselves once they, they reach 18, 20, 25, 30. I think that for most people, boosting their confidence is of more value than, you know, humbling them. And is, is, there, is there also the flip side, which is you can believe that uh, the carrying of responsibilities is the definition of you and the, the proof of your adulthood, if you sort of mean. So can, you, can it go too far? Specifically talking about, for instance, work, because you mentioned it before. Yes. Um, that that it's, it's possible to see your identity, not just as a person, but as an adult, being entirely wrapped up with your work. And then you've got the question, well, you may not feel that way, so what do you, what do, you do? What do you do if you're walking in and you're, I don't know, you're, you're 22, new company, or 23 as you were, and you're talking to uh, uh, people who are older than you, who you assume know more than you do, or that would be the implication. And, you know, how, how do you... Uh, yeah, so, so there's a question about um, uh, becoming the, the right person at the right time in the room. You know, that, there's, there's something about that there. Can you... But, yeah. Often, when we're hired for a role that we've never done before, we kind of feel like we're a stranger in a strange land or we're some kind of imposter. But I want to point out that the hiring committee probably knows what they're doing. And in that case, deferring to your employer when it comes to your capacity to handle the role, assuming that you've been truthful during the interview, that that is to, to recognize that, well, maybe they've interviewed other people 
like you right. and they've come to realize that you're actually the best candidate for the job and your insecurities, your doubts, your worries are not actually an accurate representation of your future in the role. So, so I, I read or heard somewhere that, you know, 75% of your identity is essentially contextually based. So it's your social situation, the society you're in, um, it's other people's consensus about you, if you sort of mean. And about 25% is what you're born with. So that means, by that logic, that means you have an awful lot of control over those aspects of your personality and behavior. And who you, you associate with and what right. places you'll place yourself into. So the context reflects who you believe you are. Right. So the hiring board has decided that you have what it takes. You, you, you take on this role. It turns out that they're right and work very well. And perhaps you progress uh, in, in the business. And then, bef- you know, you, you're spending, what, 15 hours a day maybe. Uh, and maybe 17 if you're preoccupied with it as well. You know, this is... It's not uncommon to be obsessed by your work, right? Um, and then when people say, so, you know, you meet people, they might say, you might define yourself and say, well, I'm a lawyer or I'm, I'm a doctor or, you know. Uh, but that sense of identity, that can, be, that can be taken away very quickly. You can suddenly one day wake up and you're not a lawyer, <laughs> you know. So what, what's the answer to finding that uh, sense of validation from what it is what, that, that you do and what... But what are the problems with it? I mean, there are plenty of people that successfully are lawyers well into their uh, 80s. So why not? Why, why aren't we also um, defined by what we do and can't we take heart in that? Where does it go well, wrong? I'll, I'll take to heart the 25-75% division that you mentioned earlier, right. where 25% of your identity is something you're born with and the 75% is socially negotiated. So the 25% that you're born with, you know, that's for you to realize and to self-express. Um, the 75% that you socially negotiate, I want to point out, includes friends and family and neighbors. It's not primarily work. If you look at yourself through a lens of only your commercial value, you are um, neglecting all of your humanity that cannot be monetized and which your friends and family do see. And I would say clearly, even I would say a dog or a cat can see that clearly. It is only at work that you are viewed through a lens of how much do you cost and how much value can you produce, which can be monetized. So I would speak out against the idea of overly identifying with one's work. The analogy that you might have heard me use is that the value of the lumber at the hardware store represents a mere tiny fraction of the value of the living tree in the forest. Now, the lumber at the hardware store might represent the entirety of that tree's commercial value, but when it comes to things like filtering carbon from the atmosphere and providing a home to to, to birds and squirrels, there is a value in that. At least it is of my opinion that there is value in that. And a human being has value as life and as a human being and doesn't just have value in the commercial sphere. It's just the over-identification with, with the commercial value that I'm and, uh, and taking that on a little, I suppose, taking a little bit further, because your identity is also partially, uh, to a great degree, sort of socially negotiated, if you're only socially negotiating in one realm, 
then you are not allowing other realms to uh, to be updated as you go. I, can, I remember hearing um, somebody was saying that uh, their dad, when he retired, he had almost no friends. He had no social network, whereas her mother did. And the explanation that this person gave was because her father was necessarily, and this is this is the burden of, of for, for many, having to it was the sole breadwinner basically, and uh, had to put you know, wanted to put the kids through college, all the, all the things, right? But as a result, he didn't cultivate those other sides of his life. And I suppose that's one of the perils, I suppose, of over-identifying or over-allowing one particular domain of your identity to take over, is because you also sort of think, well, how would this, how would this person have benefited from being able to to have an identity outside of his work? I assume that he had no, you know, let's let's say that he had very little choice, but that is that is something that is lost, I think, if somebody is essentially, you know, the quote, married to your work kind of thing. And I actually blame him. Right. Because I'm going to treat him as an adult. Uh-huh. And as an adult, you are metaphorically the captain of your ship, which is one of the points of what we'll get to. And I hope it doesn't sound overly harsh, because my intent is not to have adulthood feel onerous or burdensome to him. I want him to feel empowered and liberated to decide how much of his time and energy will be allocated to one area of his life and how much time will be allocated to the other parts. It is tremendously empowering to to realize that you're the captain of your ship and where you're going to end up in five years and 10 years and 20 years is determined by which way you're pointing the vessel. So it is to empower and and liberate this person that, that I say that I, I blame him. When I started to count myself as an adult, I wanted more responsibility. I knew that I was taking the risk of being criticized. It's because I felt that to to be effective in the world, I needed responsibility and therefore exposure to blame. That's why I, I took on both at the same time. Um, I think it would be quite impossible to, to take on responsibility and then try to say your hands are clean when things are go wrong. The, the two have to go hand in hand. Is, is, there, a, is there a cultural fear of, of blame? Is there a sort of a, a how can I put it? Do, do, there, do you see what I'm getting at? There's... There's a lot of toxic shame in a lot of people around the world. And there's such a thing as healthy shame, which regulates your behavior. There's also such a thing as toxic shame, which is detrimental and really to, to no benefit. So, But there's, there's a difference between that and uh, accepting responsibility and also accepting, therefore accepting, when you fall short of your goals or you fall short of where you pitched for, you know. Yeah, so the, the, the reason I have to bring this up is that a lot of people don't differentiate what you're talking about, which is falling short of, of things you commit Set to. Set out to do or committed to. Or, right. Yeah. And who you are as a person. Because the feeling of shame is that you're fundamentally bad as a person independently of the things you do or do not do. Right. So 
because of this conflation between your badness and the, quote, badness of one's actions or the badness of one's outcome, people see bad outcomes as personally shameful to right. them. And th that's what I want to kind of tease yeah. out and have people separate in their own hearts and minds, where they can still be a good person and make mistakes. Yeah. They can still be not a perfect, let's say, parent or, or doctor, but a good enough one that they can still sleep well at night and feel good ab about themselves. When, when shame becomes overwhelming, when people get into these so-called shame spirals and, you know, they'll often drink too much or use too many drugs or sleep too much, or it is, again, detrimental to no benefit. So at the same time that I'm talking about how I'm blaming yeah, your yeah, friend, yeah. it is because I value him as an adult man. I've never met the guy, yeah. but I'm assuming he's yeah. over 18. Um, and he's human. So I value him as an adult man because th that's who he is. Because of that, I can point out that he's responsible for ending up where he's at in life. He's also responsible for where he's going to end up yeah. in five or ten years. Yeah, what he does next, yeah. And the, 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 the actions then are separate from who he is as a person. And because the actions are separate from who he is as a person, he can change his actions without feeling personal shame. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, and also, I suppose there's um, also part of being an adult is being able to uh, face face up to things and to own up to where you fail and to own up without without it turning into shame. In fact, that that could be again going back to the self assurance at the beginning is that you have self-assurance enough to say, yep, that was me, I farted in the lift, I farted in the elevator. You know, that, that sort of, yep, yeah, all right. Yep. Yeah. We'll talk quite a bit in various contexts about how adulthood partly means to align with reality, to, to see reality, to acknowledge it, to acknowledge it as quickly as possible, and then to accept it as quickly as we can. That This is one of the markers of a mature adult. Okay, so as a teaser, here is a list of the axioms or fundamental principles that we'll be outlining in the future episodes uh, on what it takes to be an adult. How to embrace responsibility and take charge of your life. Treat yourself with respect and esteem. Benefit from the value of truth, capital T truth. Be a producer, not just a consumer. Define your priorities and define the steps to achieve them. And then finally, be pro-social and leave the world a better place than you found it. Because you were born human. So dig a bit more into what this podcast is going to be like then. I mean, um, we could just sit here and say, you should do this, you should do that. Or we could say, you know, this is good, this is bad. Is that how you see this going? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> no. Why would I moralize? Well, so, so the, 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 this subject matter of how to be an yeah. adult, I think is going to be triggering for a lot of people because when they came of age, their parents started giving them more household chores and they started talking about how you're going to be an adult soon. And then adulthood started to have connotations of a burden. Mm -hmm. And I don't see adulthood like that at all. To communicate 
to, 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 to our listeners how I feel about adulthood, I think I have to communicate in ways completely devoid of judgment and moralizing. So some of our listeners want to be pillars of their community, and others listeners might just want to be unrepentant hedonists. And either way, the principles that we just talked about yeah. are going to be relevant. Yeah. Either way, you can have a very happy life. I'm just trying to guide people when their parents and, and their teachers and like little league coaches didn't give them the, the, the proper guidance as to how to be a happy adult. So if they learned how to be a miserable adult because of their role models, then this, I mean, th th that's who I've made the podcast for. And this this also suggests that the principles that you're you're you know you're going to be talking about that we're going to be talking about are uh, uh, common to all humans, and not uh, they don't start off from a position of you being a particular specific individual uh, and speak specifically to your the detail of your reality, but these are principles that uh, are overarching so that they're not based in uh, the individual, but as in the general truths about what it is to be human. Is that right? It's the endeavor. Right. I, I am setting aside the idea that there are no universals among human beings. To me, the idea that there are no universals among human beings is just as far-fetched as the idea that there are no universals among all dogs yeah. or among all cats, where approaching a strange mixed breed in the dog park and treating that animal like they're a dog will probably not produce any egregious errors in your behavior. You don't have to try to figure out, okay, well, I, I mean, what mix of purebred <laughs> breeds is that animal? That's not a way of thinking that's going to produce a better way to interact with the animal. Even trying to figure out, is it male or female? That's not going to produce a better way for interacting with the animal. If you kind of recognize the dogness in the animal and treat the animal as a dog, you won't make any egregious errors. I, I am advancing the claim that if, if there is a gigantic overlapping part of the Venn diagram that, that describes 8 billion people, and if we interact with people accounting for this gigantic overlapping center of the Venn diagram, we are not making any egregious errors. It's when we kind of look at the thin slices on the edges of the Venn diagram where we find the differences, that, that, that's where our attention would be on, I think, superficial matters. So yes, I, I am seeking a kind of universalist life philosophy that transcends time and culture. Whether we'll succeed in the endeavor, the listeners can judge over the next however many episodes. I, I but that <laughs> at least is the direction I'm sailing toward. Then what, um, what gives us the right to talk about any of this? Why don't you go first? <laughs> uh, okay, well, I'm Pascal Langdale. I'm, I'm uh, an actor of 30-odd years. I've studied human behavior in order to become other people in, in quite some depth. And uh, everything from nonverbal behavior to psychophysical uh, acting techniques and so on. But this makes me a keen observer of the human uh, condition, even as I am a flawed human being as well. But I've learned from every character I ever played, and I learned the most from those characters I played the best. I've also worn many hats and been 
uh, sort of the 75% socially mediated identity. I've also um, been a business developer. I've also um, built fences, uh, done construction and all the rest of it. And also being a father as well, that's a revolution in your whole uh, identity too. Uh, and now blended family. So the, 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 the ongoing process of being an adult is something that's, <laughs> that's I felt very keenly for, uh, for my entire adult life, basically. All right, so that's, that's, uh, that's uh, my background. What about you? As for myself, I'm Luke Chow. I'm a hypnotherapist. I've been one since I was 23 years old. We're actually right now sitting in my old office, which we've converted to a studio. And over the past 17 years, we've hypnotized over 8,000 people, probably about a half of whom I've hypnotized myself. So this universalism that I strive for and claim that I, I have comes from th these thousands of clients I've gotten to, to, to know and then help. One of the challenges of a hypnotherapist is we have to work on the short timelines that people expect us to work on. Right. So no one expects to be in hypnotherapy for years like they expect to be in psychotherapy for years. So I've had to kind of universalize from earlier cases. General principles I can apply to later cases because I literally don't have the timeline to get to know each client as an individual. I have to treat them as human first and then individual qualities as finer grained details that fall under their humanity. That's where a lot of the content for this podcast will come from. I'm not just examining my own life. I am primarily drawing this material from the various cases I've worked with and specifically not individuals, but the the generalized principles that arise from so many cases. And as a double check, I also check with myself. And I ask myself, does the principle apply to me personally? And that's part of my universalism, where if it applies to me and it applies to all these, these people who I don't know as well, but I can generalize from, then probably the principle sound enough to broadcast to the internet on a podcast called How to Be an Adult. Thank you for listening. That brings our first episode to a close. If you like what you've heard here, Pascal and I are both available for hire through the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada, and we're also seeing clients worldwide online. The website is morphisclinic.com, and you can ask for a free consultation there. As hypnotherapists, we're basically practical philosophers at heart. Where the ideas you've heard us talk about during this episode, we instill in our clients. I know you probably have a lot of questions about the H word, but that's what the consultation process will be about. So if you uh, are interested, follow us on YouTube at Morpheus Hypnosis, uh, or uh, you can listen to the podcast, subscribe on Spotify or uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Watch out for our next episode where we fill out some of these foundational principles on how to be an adult. Mm -hmm.